pitiful. A thousand people freezing their butts off, waiting to worship a rat. What a hype. Groundhog Day used to mean something in this town. They used to pull the hog out, and they used to eat it. You're hypocrites, all of you. You got a problem with what I'm saying, Larry? Untie your tongue and you come out here and talk, huh? Am I upsetting you, princess? You know, you want a prediction about the weather? You're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold. It's going to be gray. And it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Happy Groundhog's Day, everyone. That, of course, was the uh, immortal Phil Connors, played by Bill Murray, in Groundhog Day, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. This is Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. And we are recording this on Groundhog's Day, February 2nd, 2023. Now, we're going to be talking about a couple cases from the Federal Courts of Appeals that aren't about groundhogs or Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, or the coming of spring, but they are about perennial subjects uh, in the law that in that way are in keeping with the spirit of the, the movie and even the holiday. Now, we have a very special guest joining us today who we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but first, I'd like to introduce my colleague at the Institute for Justice, Seth Young. Seth, welcome back to Short Circuit. Anthony, thanks for having me on. And Seth will be talking about a property rights case from the Fourth Circuit in a little bit. Uh, so we'll look forward to that. But first, he is the man behind the Twitter account, A Crime a Day. He is the author of How to Become a Federal Criminal, an Illustrated Handbook for the Aspiring Offender. He's a Connecticut attorney. And most importantly to us, he has served as local counsel for the Institute for Justice. I'm very pleased to welcome back to Short Circuit, Mike Chase. Mike, how you doing? I'm good. It is good to be back. Thanks for having me. Now, Mike, you have uh, a couple young kids, and I believe at least, at least your son is of school age. So is, is Groundhog Day a big thing at, at their school or your house? You know, is it, is it something that the, the teachers try to make them uh, make dioramas about the groundhog or how, how has it come up? He, he, uh, he came home telling me the other day that Punkatani Phil – uh, was going to tell us if there was going to be more winter. So I don't think that they did a really good job explaining it to him. But well, uh, that's close. Maybe Punkatani Phil, like he he kind of has the mohawk. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's he listens true. to some new wave. Uh, maybe. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, he probably listens to. I don't know what. I don't know who who the, the latest clash. punk musicians are. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah, punk doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, no, he's aware of it. But I just warn him about the perils of Groundhog Day because. Like, you know, at his age, he doesn't know that 16 USC Section 668DD and uh, 50 CFR 32.49 make it a federal crime to hunt a groundhog before July 15th in the Wallkill River National Wildlife Refuge in New Jersey. So it's important that he uh, he gets trained up at home. Well, I'm very glad our listeners um, have heard those citations. And I think what we <laughs> need to do is put a link in the show notes um, sure. To that that a statute and regulation, in yeah. case they might be going to that um, to that park. It's true. Um, so that is important for our listeners to know. And another important uh, detail 
is uh, what happens when you rob a bank. Um, mm. So, Mike, I want want you to to take us through. You know, if you're planning on robbing a bank and you have a Google account, what you might need to worry about um, in this pending case in the Fourth Circuit, uh, where yeah. there's been a district court opinion, United States versus Chatry. Yeah, Chatry is is uh, pretty fascinating because of how you know emergent this technology is, but also how omnipresent the technology is. Uh, the only, the only tweak, of course, Anthony, as you know, is it's what you do if you were allegedly rob a bank. Sorry. Right? Excuse yeah, me. Exactly. Um, but yeah, Chatry is an interesting case because it, it proceeds from this bank robbery that occurred back in 2019 and the police were investigating this bank robbery, you know, traditional facts guy comes in, puts a note, says, uh, if you don't give me a hundred thousand dollars or more, I'm going to kill your family, I know where you live, uh, ends up uh, brandishing a firearm and holding some folks hostage until he ends up getting his uh, actually $195,000 out of the, the bank and then takes off. And in the aftermath of it, the police don't really have uh, suspects. Uh, and in the course of their investigation, they have to resort to some uh, more late-breaking technologies to try and track somebody down. Interestingly, uh, they do get a couple of leads. Uh, before we get to the actual meat of Chatry, I'll just say one of the most fascinating parts of this case that gets only a sentence of treatment in the district court opinion is uh, is that a an ex girlfriend called the police and said, "I know exactly who did this police who did this bank robbery." And they track it down and they determine that this ex boyfriend uh, absolutely did not do it and was not a suspect. So in the in the mayhem of the aftermath of this robbery, a jilted ex-girlfriend called the police and accused a guy who had a solid alibi and was not uh, the perpetrator. So beware about how you end your relationships because- an innocent uh, mistake by her, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's exactly true. But in any event, Chatry is interesting because it, as you mentioned at the in the tease, it proceeds from this Google technology that is lurking in the background of everybody's phone. And what essentially happened here is the police applied for uh, a warrant, but got cooperation from Google to produce this geofence data or this geolocation data uh, from Google. And the, the nub of it is they ask Google about a radius. They say, here's a 300 yard radius or 150 yard radius. And we want to know every single person for who you have data that passed through this radius during this hour period of time. And obviously, you know, in, in Wichita, that may be a lot fewer people in Manhattan. It's probably going to be a lot more people, but that's the ask. And they, they, they draw a circle around the bank. They say between uh, this, you know, five o'clock and, and six o'clock, we want everybody who passed through there, everybody that you have data for. And the police, of course, are so confident about this technology because uh, not because only a few people have Google technology on their phone, but because we all do and we may not even realize it. And in the furious process of downloading these apps and opening these apps, we're all consenting to all sorts of use of this data and it gets stored in this huge vault of information at Google. And so there's a process ensues. Google then sends de-identified data to the police and says, here's a de-identified list of everybody who passed through that circle. 
Then in the second round, they basically asked the police to narrow their search and say, all right, give us a, a narrower set of people that based on what we sent you in the first round seem to fit that and we'll give you more information. Then they narrow that and they get even more information before they end up getting identifiable information, which gives them a list of names and email addresses associated with the people that pass through this, this area. And that's how they get to the defendant Chatry in this case. And as you can imagine, he ends up getting indicted by a grand jury. He ends up getting prosecuted and he files a motion to suppress saying, wait a second, you don't have sufficient probable cause. This warrant isn't sufficiently particularized. This is a general warrant and you should not be able to to use the fruits of this of this general warrant to to prosecute me. And that should be suppressed. And the district court, in a lengthy opinion, 60, more than 60 pages, I think, um, says this is really problematic and does everything that the district court can to explain how problematic from a Fourth Amendment perspective this kind of dragnet of data can be except suppressing <laughs> the information. <laughs> gets down to the very end of the decision and says – except there's this good faith exception and we're going to apply the good faith exception. The upshot of the good faith exception in this context is despite the district court finding that Google has way too much information, despite finding that there probably really isn't any particular particularity in the warrant application, despite the fact that there wasn't probable causes to every single person that passed through that radius during that hour period of time, at least the detective consulted with some prosecutors and asked a magistrate to approve this warrant. And that's good faith enough for us. And so we can't suppress this information. The case is now up on appeal uh, at the Fourth Circuit. And the main question is, aside from all these obvious Fourth Amendment issues, does the good faith exception actually apply to general warrants? And the reason that that's important is because as the appellant makes abundantly clear, the entire purpose of the Fourth Amendment was to avoid general warrants. The reason that we have the Fourth Amendment is because these general warrants were, were in need of being prohibited. And how can you possibly ever have good faith to apply for and obtain and search pursuant to a general warrant? And so the, the question for the Fourth circuit to address is going to be whether or not the good faith exception can ever apply to a warrant that is actually a general warrant. You know, the last sort of coda to all this that I'll note that is very interesting is at the district court level, this was maybe the first time ever that Google filed an amicus brief at the district court level. And Google, some people might initially be surprised to this, essentially said, yeah, this is a problematic process and this is way too much information. And we do think that um, Mr. Chatry probably had a, um, a an expectation of privacy in this data. And the third party doctrine shouldn't apply because this isn't like an ordinary course business document. This is a like a journal entry. It's, it's sort of incidental logging of geolocation information. And, you know, you might say, oh, Google argued all this out of the goodness of its heart and in the interest of civil liberties, I think the true answer is that they don't want to have to field these 
continued requests from law enforcement and they don't want to have to reap the whirlwind of of, of angry consumers who think that their uh, privacy, uh, their expectation of privacy is being, you know, uh, run over with a, a steamroller. So the upshot is Fourth Circuit's going to have to decide whether there can ever be a good faith exception to a general warrant. And they're going to have to decide whether this kind of novel technology with geolocation data uh, can be used uh, in, in criminal prosecutions. And have I, I didn't look, have the feds cross appealed on the underlying Fourth Amendment issue? Well, they're, they're really, I, I'd have to look at the uh, the docket again, but but I, I think they ultimately won because there was no suppression. And so uh, they're, uh, they're not I, – I, I have to look at the docket to see if that happened. But, but ultimately, they were the victors. So I think that they're – I think they have not cross-appealed. Gotcha. Seth, uh, have you opted out of uh, Google um, data uh, t- telling them wherever you are? I actually have. I was aware of these things. I'm a bit of a privacy nut myself. So I have gone through all my Google settings and made sure that they're not collecting this on me and that they have deleted anything they had from the past. A very small minority of uh, Google users, I believe. I am. I am. I'm sure. What was your take of both the the Fourth Amendment analysis and then this uh, application of the good faith uh, exception? Well, on the Fourth Amendment analysis, I think it pose the same problems that I'm not the first to say, but that our doctrine hasn't caught up to the technology. I think kind of this general idea that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you're out in public made sense 50 years ago when there weren't cameras literally everywhere. Just yesterday I was walking through, or in the last couple of days, I was walking through my parking garage at my apartment and I spotted a Tesla and I know that those Teslas are always recording and the owner of the Tesla can go pull video. And I think it comes with audio. And so that's always on. And then you pair that with the third party doctrine where you're not considered to have, you know, once you give it to someone else, they're then free to give it to the government. And the ease of with which this technology collects all this data and, you know, can make it live and can aggregate it and can make it easily accessible. All of a sudden you have this world in which Every time you're not in your own home, or if you are in your own home and you have something um, like one of these devices you talk to, um, you know, a, a Google Home or something like that, um, you're recorded all the time, and then the government can can get that, and it flies in the face of I think what we would like to think is our privacy, because you know, back in the day when the government thought that you could, you know, be watched at any time, it was because they would only do that when they actually thought you were a criminal because they had to hire a detective to follow you, kind of an old shoe leather principle. And that's no longer there anymore. And so our Fourth Amendment doctrine has not caught up with that, and I would really like to see it do so. Um, so I, I think I had concerns with this case the same way everyone else did. That's a really good point, actually, on this case, because the you know the the one of the questions that is getting put to the Fourth Circuit on this application of the good faith exception is technology is moving so fast that it, it's almost like the first dog bite uh, principle, right? The first bite is free. Well, with technology, the first misuse of an emergent technology will always be free pursuant to the good faith exception. And if they say, whoa, 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 hey, look, no district court had ever told us we couldn't use this Google 
uh, data, geolocation data. By the time that the next case comes to the, the, the appellate court, it's going to be a whole new technology. And so every single time this happens, they're going to be able to say, hey, nobody had told us that that particular uh, technology, which is brand new, couldn't be used. It's, it'll be like a, a form of qualified immunity where district courts can't move fast enough. Circuit courts can't move fast enough to tell law enforcement they can't use every single emergent technology. And, and all that's happening is we're increasing the ways in which we're tracked. I, your point about Tesla was was a good one because, funny enough, I was on the highway yesterday and I remember thinking, wow, Tesla with all these cameras that are recording all the time, there's very little keeping Tesla from amassing license plate scanning technology that could effectively map the entire countries travel patterns on the highways um, by just logging where and when every other license plate around it was. And so we should watch closely how the third party doctrine gets applied in these cases and, and how the generalized warrant uh, principle you know gets uh, gets applied in this case because it's only going to become a worse problem. So I have a bit of a it's more a bit of a devil's advocate question for you, Mike, but it's also more just me being confused, not that conversant with technology question. So, and I get the third the third party doctrine being that uh, the the person, if if like in this case, Google is the real party that receives the warrant, not the defendant, and so that the third for our listeners unfamiliar with it, the third party doctrine is whether the defendant himself would have. Uh, uh, stand, uh, the ability to object to that. So I get I get that problem in, with today's you know um, amount the data that that everyone has out there flying around. But in terms of Google and this data, so the warrant the warrant of course doesn't ask for all data Google has, which would be quite unmanageable. It asks for geolocation data for this area um, that is pretty. You know, relatively small, um, the couple blocks around this bank, and um, and for a certain time period where this bank robber was there, um, how is that not in some way analogous to say a a subpoena or a warrant to obtain like a hotel guest registry, you know, just for just say for for one night. Um, at a hotel, say it's like a really, really big hotel that's maybe about the, you know, close to the size of of this location that the cops are asking for. Um, no one's going to say that there's, you know, a problem there where a warrant for the hotel registry that maybe maybe that the hotel, you know, it's keeping it for its own devices. It's not keeping it because there's some law saying they have to keep it, which there are laws like that. Um, how is that not analogous? And so what is like the big problem, at least with this level of, um, of asking for, for this data, because it's just, you know, data they happen to have about where people were at a, at a certain time. And it's pretty defined when that time and location is. There's no problem when you're talking about step one in the Google uh, process. And so the district court walked through this, you know, in, in, in great detail, the three-step process by which you get all this data. The, the issue is when you get to steps two and three. So if you went into the hotel and you got the guest list, that's a static point in time. It gives you a list of folks that checked in to the hotel at a particular point in time. 
Imagine, however, that the hotel gives you a pedometer or something that you clip to your belt and it has sure. a geolocation or a GPS tracking device in it. And then when you're in Fort Lauderdale on your vacation, it follows you all around the city. And so then they say to the hotel, all right, give us the guest list, but then also give us the map of where every single one of these guests went. That's really where the Fourth Amendment problem comes into play, because what you end up doing is then you're affecting a search. Then you're intruding upon uh, the person's whereabouts at all these points in time. And you're doing so without without probable causes to each and every single person on that list. And so that's what's happening here with Google is you're you're finding a group of people that passed through dynamically. Right. But at a static point in time, an hour period that passed through a certain time. But then you're getting from Google a search of everywhere else they went and they traveled after that. And, and so that that's that's the key problem here is you're affecting a Fourth Amendment search on all of those people without probable causes to each and every one of those. And there's there's case law on point, uh, certainly in the Fourth Circuit and elsewhere that says that when you're going to do that, you need to have probable causes to each and every person that's on on that list. Gotcha. So if they had just asked for the names, so they did get the names, but not where these of the, of the people who passed through this location, but not where they went afterward. Would that be different? I mean, that might be a long list of names. Yeah, I think it would be different. I mean, certainly what would the ordinary shoe leather process be in in the old world be? You get a guest list and you call in all 20 people or 100 people on that list to the police department. And you know what? Half of them who are smart probably say, I'm not talking to you without a lawyer present. I'm not sitting down and talking to you. And then maybe some other ones talk about all the other stuff they did. And and then in the process of it, they step on them themselves and they they confess to having, you know, bought, you know, drugs on the corner and doing all this other stuff, but they're not really suspects. And, and it creates all kinds of problems like that. But but the issue is whether or not you can get this search of people who have a reasonable expectation of privacy with with nothing more than the fact that they were at a particular place at a particular time. Uh, so that's, you know, look, we saw this, we saw this with the uh, NSA uh, and all of their, you know, cell phone, you know, data. We've seen it. We're going to continue to see it with with all kinds of other technologies that are emerging. But, yeah, the problem becomes when you affect a an intrusive search on the lives of people who for whom you have no probable cause whatsoever. Right. Well, this was a case about a particular property that someone wanted to leave quite quickly uh, with their $183,000. We're now going to talk about a case where someone could not access their property um, for quite a long period of time, which usually you would think is pretty a pretty big constitutional problem, but it seems like the Fourth Circuit didn't think so. So, Seth, uh, what was uh, happening with these, uh, these homeowners who, who just wanted to go to their beach house? Well, Anthony, it was March 2020, right after the start of the pandemic, and um, Dare County, North Carolina, which is several of the outer banks, um, it includes like the towns of Nags Head and um, Kitty Hawk, believe it or not, uh, they put in some emergency measures and they kicked into place. It was a different, it, the measures scaled up day by day. And the level of emergency restrictions we're concerned about kicked in on the fourth day. And what that said was that non-resident property owners couldn't enter the county for 45 days. 
after that fourth day. So the non-resident property owners essentially had four days notice to come onto the island and go to their property or they wouldn't be able to access it for 45 days. So um, this couple, uh, Joseph and Linda Blackburn, uh, lived in Richmond, Virginia, and had a vacation home uh, there in Dare County, North Carolina. And they did not go to their vacation home in that four-day period when they had uh, to, to go to it. And then they couldn't go for 45 days. And they brought suit alleging a taking and seeking compensation under the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, the district court rejected that. Uh, they said it was not a physical taking. It was not a Lucas per se taking, nor was it a taking under the Penn Central test. Uh, the Blackburns appealed, and unfortunately, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that lower court ruling and said that this was indeed not a taking of the Blackburns' property. Um, the reasoning was really quite simple. They, they first walked through it to say that there was not a physical taking, that there was no physical intrusion on the Blackburns' property, and therefore... It was not a, you know, that first level of taking that is very easy to get compensated for. That's the easiest thing to establish, kind of the classic taking where the government comes on your property, takes part of your property, probably takes title to part of your property. Um, uh, and it's that, that is correct, but it also, it, it, it rubbed me the wrong way here that they said it wasn't a physical taking but the effect on the, on, on the Blackburns was quite physical. They were physically excluded from their property. It is as if a barrier had been put up around their property and they could not go to it. Um, but the court said that temporarily excluding an owner from their property differs from elimin eliminating the owner's right to exclude. Um, so it was not a physical taking and it didn't fall under um, you know, the, the latest Supreme Court case, Cedar Point, on this issue. And then Lucas is a case, uh, those who litigate in the property area, are familiar with it's like it says that even when the taking or the alleged taking is not physical when it is regulatory you can still recover when it removes um, all value from the property when it when it quote denies all economically beneficial or productive use of land unquote uh, the court said that it was not that and I I, I was a little cross-eyed at the court's reasoning here um, they, they said things I didn't appreciate they said that well the you know the Lucas's during, uh, during the 45-day, they could have still rented their property to someone else. Um, that, that would have been dead easy that time. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, yes. During Without COVID, being there at all. Yeah, and, and uh, we at IJ know that there are never restrictions on short-term rentals that get in the way of, <laughs> uh, of, of renting your property out. So the court just kind of gave that to them and said, yeah, you know what? You, you weren't robbed of all economically beneficial use. And I, I'm, I was annoyed by that because it's like, well, they were robbed of the economic beneficial use they wanted to use it for as their property, which was to go stay at it. Um, but the, the temporary prohibition could not have rendered the Blackburn's property valueless is what the court said. Um, and and they, they said it lasted only 45 days. Um, but then um, the court turned to the Penn Central test, which uh, like Bill Murray's, Murray's character in Groundhog Day, we in the property rights field relive over and over again and try to figure out how to get out of, but never seem to be able to. Um, there is no winning under the Penn Central test. It is a, a, an old test that says that when, it is a, when the uh, challenged alleged taking is regulatory in nature 
and it does not it is not the Lucas taking where you look at whether it has denied all economically beneficial or productive use of the land. You consider the economic impact of the regulation, the extent to which the regulation has interfered with the distinct investment-backed expectations of the property owner, and the character of the government action. So it is a very amorphous three-part test. And the court, um, you know, they concluded that the Blackburns had not met that standard, and they walked through each of the, each of the three prongs. Um, they said that, but they, but they let off with saying that the Blackburns did not plead facts establishing any diminution in value, let alone a substantial one. Um, but, and, and that's why they failed the first factor of the Penn Central test. Then the court was gracious enough to tell the Blackburns that the second factor did weigh in their favor, um, the factor being the extent to which the regulation has interfered with distinct investment back expectations. Um, you know, they were denied the current use of their property and it, it, even as a vacation home. And so therefore that factor did sort of weigh in their favor because they wouldn't be able to use it personally had they wanted to. Um, but then the court said, well, there's this third factor under the Penn Central test, which is the character of the use restriction. And um, this is where the court says, you know what? No one really knows what this means. It's up to every court to kind of just fill in the blanks and kind of consider whatever the court thinks is relevant here. I appreciated um, the court's honesty there, by the way, saying like that this, this is meaningless. Yes. I, it, it, I did appreciate that. Unfortunately, it means that the, you know, the plaintiff usually always loses, <laughs> but at least the court was honest that this, this standard wasn't really a standard at all, or it's not a standard, but this test provides no standard uh, because there's this third factor and no one really knows what it means. And, it, you know, the court said, rather than identify clear character traits, courts have treated this factor as an open-ended inquiry into whatever considerations they think are most relevant in each specific case. Um, because these Penn Central is an ad hoc factual inquiry with few invariable rules. Um, so here's, here, here was the thing the court said here that I found most annoying. It said that the the Blackborns controlled their home during the controlled their home during the entire time the order was in effect, and have, could have personally used it had they arrived in Dare County by March twentieth, twenty twenty. So the fact that the Blackburns did not lose control of their home and could have used it had they had just gotten there within four days um, was was relevant to the court here because they were not dispossessed of their vacation home. And the court also continuously referred to it as a vacation home. I, and, and, you know, we're all thinking Outer Banks of, of, of North Carolina. This is probably some nice beach house. And so maybe people aren't quite as sympathetic, but I would like listeners to imagine if this, you know, wasn't some – try not to imagine some – couple with some nice vacation home where they were trying to go quarantine. But imagine if this had been some other property where it was very, was very important for you to reach it. And cabin you know, that your grandpa built and you've been visiting for a hundred years and correct. You want this to bring is, the you know, kids to see their family's heritage. Property rights are property rights and it doesn't really matter. To, it shouldn't really matter to the government um, whether it is your first home, your second home or a luxury item. Uh, if you own it, you should be able to use it, in my mind. Um, uh, and then the court also looked at whether the, the distributional impact of the order, and this was also interesting. They said that um, uh, it, it didn't, didn't help the, the Blackburns because it was a, a broad-based regulation. Um, the Blackburns brought this also um, as a class action, and they said the fact that they brought it as a class action shows 
that the costs of this were diffuse, spread among many people. It affected lots. It wasn't aimed specifically at the Blackburns. Um, and they said that, uh, the, so the burden was widely distributed. And they also said that it affects, um, uh, it, that this regulation affected um, people who maybe didn't have a home that they were kept from, but who counted on uh, the revenue from tourists and, and the non-residents who wouldn't be able to come. Therefore, this burden was really borne by everyone in Dare County, not just the people who weren't able to use their homes. Um, it, it also, the court also said that, um, that the Blackburns uh, could have benefited from this the same way everyone else had. If they had just gotten to their property within four days, the benefits of having the county shut down and not being exposed to COVID, they too could have shared in those benefits. Um, uh, I, I, I found that they didn't explain that well. I had to read between the lines to get there and, and think of which benefits um, they were alluding to. Maybe it was because of my COVID skepticism, but I, I thought that was particularly disingenuous to say, you know, if, if you get to come here, you get to come here within four days and then you two get the benefits of everyone else being restricted from coming here. Um, and so that, that is how the Blackburns lost under the, um, you know, I, they're not being able to use their home for 45 days was not a taking. They were not, it was not compensable. Um, uh, and, and, and the main culprit here I would say is once again, the Penn central test. So Mike, were you unable to access your uh, beach house, uh, during this uh, time, time period too? Yeah, but that was on account of it you know, not existing oh, uh, inst oh, right. instead of uh, regulatory taking. But I do blame the government for that as well, because I probably would have one if they didn't take so much out in taxes uh, every year. But no, look, I mean, two of the worst things that lawyers have loosed on this world are uh, regulations and multifactorial balancing tests. And I think that this is a good example of that. I mean, yeah, I, it just always really, really irritates me whenever you watch courts engage in this like bizarre exercise of saying, hey, look, here's all the other uses that there could have been for this property. And then they'll be like, hey, look, just because we banned commercial activity in your shopping mall doesn't mean that you can't let, you know, elderly mall walkers use it first thing in the morning. And it's like, it's like you're functionally, you have taken the entire benefit of the property or the entire purpose of of my using it. So it really does uh, irritate me. But, you know, look, this all just falls into that large bucket of this, this strange deference to the government doing whatever it wants to do, despite the fact that it clearly constitutes a taking of some magnitude. And uh, so I, I think that these these sort of narrow exceptions, these these loose standards under these balancing tests that allow courts to essentially, you know, condone this kind of activity are are, are ludicrous because what is the point of having this this home and what is the point of the f the framers uh you know ensuring a right to to travel unencumbered and to to freely possess property what are the point of all of those if the government can sort of just do this exact type kind of thing so i i think it's i think it's ludicrous i think it's a bad result yeah my i mean my take on reading this was that this shouldn't be a takings case but because right. all kinds of other claims that you make under the Constitution have themselves been watered down and um, and nullified, the lawyers probably felt, well, the best shot we have here is is takings, um, even if probably we're going to have to deal with Penn Central, which essentially is you know a, a version of the 
a different version of the rational basis test that we, right. we talk about on on short circuit a lot. The I mean, even there, this um, the the balance scene was uh, was pretty extreme. Um, what what I didn't you know what what it brought back to me was when this happened in March 2020. There there were a number of jurisdictions that did this really over the top. You you can't come here unless you're you're a resident. Um, I and and some of them were more, if you want to call it reasonable. I do it, it, that might be a, a a stretch, but they at least would accommodate. Say you could. I, I remember there were some counties because this happened a lot in um, you know places where p- people have a, a lot of uh, vacation homes. So um, there was there was some county I think in Colorado where you could go to your non residential home. But like you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere else, nice. or maybe you could only go to the grocery store, which is essentially what you know most Americans were living under at that time, anyway. Um, but the, there was some recognition that you could go to your property, whereas here you couldn't even enter the county, which um, it just reminds me of how extreme some of these measures were at that time, and you know, in the end, really didn't do very much. I'm not saying there weren't other measures that did much, but like this measure, did it really do anything? I don't think so. By far the worst one was in Michigan. There was an exception that said that you had to be married to Gretchen Whitmer in order to get your boat in the water, which was just, which is really, I mean, just a tiny group of people that, that met that definition. Well, I'm sure it's a nice boat. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anthony, uh, the the plaintiff appellant's briefing on this matter pointed out that the county had a shelter-in-place order. And I believe it also said they had a quarantine requirement for um, the uh, people who traveled into the county. I assume those people would be the resident property owners. Or maybe, maybe the briefing just suggested that that be the restriction in place. But they did point out that there was really a lot of other ways to achieve the same result um, than exclude – the non-resident property owners, you know, you can say that, you know, everyone else had to shelter in place. So if you came on the island, you had to shelter in place. And, you know, if you came onto the island, maybe you had to quarantine for two weeks, which, you know, we can, we can dicker about whether those are good restrictions or not at another time. But that was a way you could have not denied non-resident property owners all, all use of their property. And, you know, to your first point about this not fitting cleanly necessarily within the takings clause, uh, Footnote one of the court's, the Fourth Circuit's opinion, uh, uh, points out that uh, there could have been a privileges and immunities clause claim here um, because of the discrimination against an out-of-state resident. Um, the the plaintiffs did not bring that claim, so the court did not consider it. But the court did note that that was floating out there. Yeah. Um, we at IJ know that that would probably have been an unsuccessful claim um, because of the way the privileges and immunities clause has been gutted. Um, but, uh, and all, not to mention also that that wouldn't have protected non-resident property owners who were still residents of North Carolina, uh, that claim protecting against discrimination against out-of-state residents would have protected the Blackburns because they were residents of Virginia. But if you lived in say Charlotte and had a home in the Outer Banks, that claim wouldn't have protected you either. Yeah. That's a weird quirk of both uh, privileges and immunities clause of article four and the dormant commerce clause is that. You can discriminate against residents elsewhere in the state for living there, but not out of state uh, residents. the the other The other thing here is, you know, this is this is really just a just a right to use your property, um, which 
shouldn't really be a takings claim. It's just kind of a right to use your property. And the North Carolina Constitution, if we want to go to the state constitution, talks about your fundamental right to um, to use your property. Not saying these people should have gone to state court because I'm sure there would have been shenanigans going on there too. But um, it's it's it is a sad fact of modern constitutional law that so many cases that should be resolved a different way go into um, in the takings claim because sometimes you can actually win under a, under a takings claim. One other thought I had is just the unenumerated fundamental right to travel uh, wasn't brought up here. Now, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback it, but it's a very undeveloped uh, right. Uh, so perhaps they th- you know they would think that the court might say, well, that's above my pay grade. Usually it's come up in things like um, you know, getting a passport or or, or that kind of uh, that kind of context. A lot of the cases are very quite old from the U.S. Supreme Court, but you know that that's kind of really what it was is is a right to travel, not just the right to travel, right to travel to your own property. I, I thought about that too. Uh, I, I think this would be. I don't know how a court would treat the word travel. Seeing that this is on an island and your endpoint is there, I wonder if the court would treat that as travel when you are. <laughs> I, I think if people that is passing through, like you're you traveling there, to, yeah, you're traveling there. People, people can't, you know, the government can't restrict your right to use the interstate system, you know, to travel through Kansas or whatever. Um, but then that would that would that would highlight the point that if you had a right to travel and go there, uh, but this restriction was still in effect, then you wouldn't have the right to like cross the border onto your own property, um, you, that you were, you were excluded from your own property. And it's as if there were a physical border. Um, I, I thought of the same thing as like, you know, there's, there has to be other ways to get at this than just making a <laughs> takings claim, even though, um, as both of you alluded to, they wanted to use, they owned the property and they wanted to use it a certain way. And the government said, you may not. And the court's like, well, you know, there was a lot of other ways you could have used it, like renting it out or, um, or they, at some point, the court also said they could have hired a realtor and sold it. They still had, you know, the economic value of their property. Um, uh, and, and that was kind of to Mike's point that the government loves to tell you all the ways you can use your property that aren't the way you would like to. Right. Um, so, so that kind of says, well, if I can't use something the way I like to, that's a safe use, then do I really own it? The goal is to force us all into making arguments that make us sound like sovereign citizens so that nobody feels bad about laughing us out of court. That's that's the entire point. Mike, have you ever represented a sovereign citizen? Not voluntarily. (laughs) Well, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. Um, Well, thank you both for coming on today on our, our special Groundhog's Day episode. Um, Mike, uh, before we go, I'm sure everyone's dying to know, have you finally uh, um, cataloged every single federal crime that exists? I haven't, but you can expect things to be coming pretty soon because in its infinite wisdom, the federal government has decided to uh, reorganize huge swaths of the, the, the code of federal regulations. So, uh, there's lots of new work to be done because they've incidentally created a whole bunch of new crimes in the process. Wow. So like accidental crimes. That's that's, that's right. The, yeah. That's the best kind. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe we'll be talking about that at uh, a future short circuit. But for now, I'd like to thank the guests, uh, our guests again for coming on today. Wish everyone a happy Groundhog's Day. I hope 
It's not six more weeks of winter, although that's it's, it sounds like what Phil said uh, this morning. Here in Minnesota, there's definitely six more weeks of winter. But wherever you are, hopefully there's some sunny times ahead, and I'd hope that all of you get engaged. Thank you.